of the Lord tonight. We are glad that you are here. Also welcome those who are joining us online for our midweek Christian training. We are looking forward to this weekend. The Blakes will be here. Brother Blake will be ministering in the Word of God Sunday morning and ministering in song for us Sunday night. I'm looking forward to that. He is a powerful, powerful evangelist and a dynamic singer. So we're just going to be doubly blessed this Sunday through the Blake's ministry. If you have your Bibles this evening, if you'll turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 9. This is our focal verse of tonight's lesson. 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 9. We are continuing this is the last installment in this first series called David and Solomon. Tonight we will be talking about when Solomon asked for wisdom. And that is the heart of this focal verse. It is his answer to the Lord. Give, therefore, thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you for standing through the reading of the text. What we believe and know through our own experiences is that God's wisdom contains every blessing we need. God's word, the written word of God, this book of books, holds the answer to the questions that keep others up at night. And we, knowing the wisdom that is in the book, know where to turn and have purpose in our heart to seek God's wisdom through his word in every area of our life. There are a lot of people, especially here in North America, who call themselves Christians. And there are many, I believe, who are very sincere in their desire to be Christians. And yet that term is loosely used, thrown around flippantly at times. But we know, based on the Word of God, that you cannot truly be a Christian if you do not allow this book to affect every area of your life. This isn't something you pick up on Sunday morning and then put down on Monday morning when you go to work. 
This isn't something that just affects your spiritual life. It affects your relationships. It affects your behavior. It affects the way you dress. It affects the way that you talk. It affects your attitude. It affects the way that you react in situations. Or it should. And so, in this lesson tonight about finding God's wisdom and tapping in to God's wisdom, we understand that that wisdom is available for every situation, for every area of our life, not just how to get out of hell and make it into heaven. But it's wisdom that will get us through the day-to-day circumstances and decisions that we have to make. It was a simple Google search rooted in curiosity. Who would the all-knowing Google list as the wisest man in the world? It turns out it's a man named Christopher Michael Langan. Who knew? Never heard of him. And yet, Google said he was the wisest man in the world. Mr. Langan is reported to have endured a brutally difficult childhood, according to a Wikipedia article on his life, Langan's biological father left before he was even born and said to have died in Mexico. His mother married three more times and had a son by each husband. Her second husband was murdered. Her third husband died by suicide. And so Langan grew up with the fourth husband, Jack Langan, who has been described as a failed journalist who went on drinking sprees and disappeared from the house. He locked the kitchen cabinet so the four boys could not get into the food that was in the cabinets. And at times, he used a bullwhip as a disciplinary measure. As a child, Langan's intellectual brilliance was noted early on. He skipped multiple grades in elementary school and in his latter years of high school, Langan was allowed to teach himself because the school staff could no longer challenge him. In the last two years of high school, Langan taught himself philosophy, physics, advanced math, Greek, and Latin. When he took the SAT, he scored a perfect score even though he fell asleep briefly in the middle of it. I did not score a perfect score when I took the SAT. That probably was because I had about two hours sleep the night before deciding to go take it because I thought it was a good idea to go hang out and spend the night at a buddy's house and stay up playing video games and such. His IQ, Langan's IQ, is thought to be somewhere between 195 and 210. So the idea of Mr. Langan being one of the most intelligent people to ever live is, if not the most intelligent, is certainly plausible. That fact of his intelligence, however, does not make the Google search results valid that he is the wisest. Indeed, in his later years, Mr. Langan became an advocate for multiple conspiracy theories and exhibited racial and anti-Semitic tendencies. Was he brilliant? Absolutely. Was he the wisest? Not so much. See, wisdom is a wonderful commodity to possess, and it is highly commended to us in Scripture. When we consider wisdom from the pages of the Bible, one name immediately comes to our mind, and it is the subject of our text tonight, Solomon. 
Solomon was assured by God that there would never be another as wise as him. He is the standard bearer, so to speak, for what wisdom looks like in a life and what a life looks like when wisdom is later rejected. As we know that in his later years, after marrying way too many women, he was led astray by their idols. Gibeah was the first capital of the kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Saul. We know that King Saul went up to Gibeah shortly after being anointed. That's where he was to meet Samuel the prophet to worship. And Gibeah was that first capital city. It was located in what is now the northern part of Jerusalem and was considered to be a high place of worship. Solomon traveled there to sacrifice to the Lord here in the text tonight in 1 Kings chapter 3. He took over 1,000 animals to offer as a burnt offering to the Lord. And while he was there, God spoke to Solomon in a dream that forever changed his life. Now, all of us dream during you know that sleep period called rapid eye movement or REM. But we don't always remember what we dream. And sometimes we remember what we dreamed and wish we'd forgotten that one. And then there's other times that the dream was probably so good we wish we would have remembered it when we woke up. And the older you get, the more trips you make to the bathroom, the more dreams you get to have overnight. If I could remember all my dreams, I'd probably save more people than Rambo. The best studies that have been done indicate that dreams originate in the brain stem, but the prefrontal cortex, or that part of the brain that's associated with the higher level reasoning, is not active when we sleep. And that's why some dreams are so strange. The part of our brain that tells us it's unreasonable that we'd be flying across the country in our recliner while being chased by a giant winged aardvark is not engaged. And so it's not there to take out that irrational thought. And because of this, it's very dangerous for us to ascribe spiritual significance to every dream that we have. Many of the dreams we have are merely a biological and psychological response to the various life stimuli that we've been uh, experienced and have no connection or importance to our walk with God. Certainly, though, we do find multiple examples in Scripture of God using dreams to speak to people. So it is a means that God speaks to people, but it's not necessarily that every dream we have is God speaking to us. But it is a way. In fact, this method is specifically promised to us as members of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 2, verse 16, 17. We know this passage very well. This is when Peter is standing up on the day of Pentecost and preaching to the crowd that has gathered around after hearing the 120 speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. And he references this passage when he says, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And so dreams are a way that God speaks to us. Maybe there are some here. Have you ever had a dream that you believed was from God? I've heard of some uh, 
folks in our church having dreams that were from God um, and, and, and coming and, and telling us about it after the fact. And you're like, woo, get the chicken skin, you know. Man, I don't know that I've ever had one of those. Though. I've had some dreams. I just don't think I can point to any of them and say that was God right there. God was speaking to me. But for those of you who maybe have experienced that, what made that dream different from a regular dream you had that you knew it was God speaking to you? Because those of us who've never experienced it are curious. Inquiring minds want to know. In Solomon's dream in Gibeah, God extended a remarkable, unqualified offer to Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. Try to imagine being Solomon. Try to imagine the importance of those six simple words. Ask what I shall give thee. Just ask anything you want. No limits or boundaries of any kind were prescribed when God made this offer to Solomon, whatever Solomon desired was his for the taking. We know this was God speaking and God's resources are limitless. And so Solomon could have asked for absolutely anything in this moment. Now, subject to the will of God and our asking with the right motives, we are also given essentially the same promise regarding kingdom work. John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Jesus speaking said, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. God, who is able to do anything, offers to do anything we legitimately need in order to advance the cause of Christ in the will of God. But with Solomon, he didn't put any kind of uh, restrictions on the offer. It was completely open. Now, this in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, this is word from God, was the first time Solomon had heard directly from his creator. It might have been difficult for him to believe that such a thing as this was happening to him. It would have been easy for him to discount it as his own imagination or as the byproduct maybe of something he had eaten earlier that evening before going to bed. Instead, though, Solomon embraced and received God's promise when he made this offer. And as children of God, we must be willing to hear his voice, whether it comes through the scriptures, through the spiritual authority in our lives, or by the voice of the Spirit of God speaking within us. God desires to communicate with us, but we must be willing to hear. And I think most of us are willing to hear when he says yes. But when he says not now or no, I think I'll ask again. I don't think he heard me right. Maybe if I, maybe if I word it a little different, he'll get the meaning and understand the importance of this prayer. And it'll be a yes. But we have to be willing to let God communicate. We have to make space in our lives for God to communicate. It's real hard for God to speak to your life while you're watching Netflix. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Netflix or Hulu or whatever. Exactly. There's so many. I was waiting for somebody to trap themselves and start throwing out a bunch. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> 
I'm not saying there's anything uh, innately wrong. Obviously, what you watch can be wrong. Um, you, you can get into ungodly entertainment very quickly. But the watching of a movie is not necessarily uh, sin for or wrong, but it's definitely not going to be a time that God's most likely to speak to you. There's nothing wrong with the various social media platforms in their right place and within the right proportion to our lives. But again, the time we spend there may interrupt the time that God could be speaking to us. And so we just have to be careful about getting trapped with our time and, and having our attention completely pulled in this direction and then that direction without having time and space for God to communicate to us because he desires to. Uh, in the beginning, right, when, when we read in Genesis of Adam and Eve in the garden, it said that the voice of the Lord came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He was a walking voice. That was his relationship with Adam and Eve. And that's the relationship that he desires to have with us, to walk with us, to be a guide. He's our guide. He's not our map. Right? He promised to be our guide, but he didn't promise to be a map to us where we see the end from the beginning. But he wants to walk alongside us, and he wants to speak to us. He wants to have conversation with us. But we must be willing to make space for that. More than a few times, the scriptures use the phrase, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. I want to have ears that hear. Jesus even said uh, in one place when he was speaking that my sheep know my voice and they follow me. I want to make sure I know his voice. And I, I'm not going to get to know that voice and I'm not going to learn what that voice sounds like if I don't make space for that voice in my life and if I don't make opportunity for that voice. If there's too many voices, it'll just get lost in the noise. So I want to have ears to hear. When God speaks to us, it's necessary for us to respond. Acquiescence is rarely an acceptable reply. God requires a proactive response to what he tells us. Solomon demonstrated this truth. As staggering as the offer from God was, Solomon did not hesitate to make his request known. He responded in faith that if God had extended such a promise, then God desired this newly crowned king to express his heart's desire. But what Solomon's heart desired is what's so noteworthy in this story. Solomon could have asked for anything that would have made his own life better or more comfortable. He could have requested boundless wealth, more military might. He could have asked for a long life. He could have asked for fame, notoriety. Any of these would have improved the quality of his own life. Instead, Solomon was interested in improving the quality of the lives of those over whom he now reigned. He recognized that his youth and his inexperience made him ill-equipped to lead a nation like Israel, God's chosen people. The scope of the challenges he would face was beyond him. And it was his humility that compelled him to make the following request. Our text tonight, 1 Kings 3 and 9, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who? Clearly he's thinking, who among men 
Who among humanity is able to judge this thy so great a people? How did Solomon have the wisdom to ask for wisdom before he had wisdom? What guided Solomon's choice at this pivotal moment in his life and in Israel's history even? Perhaps we can find a, a hint or a clue as to what might have been guiding him in something he wrote later in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 and verse 7. He wrote, For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Verse number 7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. When handed a blank check by God, Solomon, knowing he was not able to handle properly this request unassisted, perhaps reached back to a conversation or likely multiple conversations he had had with his father. He may have recalled David's emphasis on the importance of wisdom and allowed that instruction to direct his response at Gibeah. Never underestimate how godly instruction you give to your children will benefit them at critical moments in their futures. Again, entertainment, there's a place for it. But don't let entertainment crowd out the space for those conversations where you can speak into your kids' lives, biblical truths, godly counsel, godly direction. Make sure that foundation is constantly being strengthened. Because I believe it was those early conversations with his father, David, that guided Solomon in this blank check situation to ask for wisdom and not something for his own betterment. I mean, you know, if God were to hand you a blank check, <clears throat> what would you ask for? God made that offer to you. Ask anything you want. What would you ask for? And why? Because Solomon's request was so selfless, God was most pleased with Solomon. Therefore, he promised Solomon that because he had not asked for wealth, military might, or long life, that he, of his own choosing, would add those blessings over and above the wise heart that he granted in response to Solomon's specific request. And time would indeed demonstrate that God kept his word as Solomon's wealth and kingdom took the breath away even from other world leaders. And we read about that in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. But while the promise of a wise heart was fulfilled unconditionally. That was the thing where he, no limits, no restrictions. What do you want? And he asked for the understanding heart to lead, the wisdom to lead the nation. That promise was fulfilled unconditionally. At least one of the additional blessings included a caveat. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 14, God speaking said, And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. God tied the length of 
Solomon's days to his willingness to keep the commandments of God and to walk in covenant obedience to him. If Solomon failed to do so, then God's promise of length of days was not binding on God. We, in 2023, even as we are reading the word of God and we are finding in their promises, we must always be aware of the conditions that are tied to many of God's promises. He is gracious and kind to extend us exceeding great and precious promises, as mentioned in 2 Peter 1.4. But in many cases, those promises have certain stipulations regarding our conduct. If we will, then he will. Uh, it's a very often repeated, if my people will, or if thou wilt, then I will. And so if we will observe his word, he will keep his word. He won't break his word, but if we break our side of the condition, then he can't fulfill his word because we're the ones that broke the promise. It makes you wonder why God put so many of the promises uh, with conditions attached to them. What was the purpose? How does him attaching conditions to some of the promises help us in living lives that are pleasing to him. Because I think that's really the reason the condition is there. I want to bless you, I want to, but I don't want it to ruin you, and so there has to be a condition met. So if I just lavish all of my goodness upon you, you may end up so spoiled, rotten, that you destroy yourself. And so I think those conditions many times are there for our protection, and so that we will not allow the blessings of God to become a curse in our lives. We have a video to go with tonight's lesson. If they'll go ahead and play that. Recently, an opportunity came my way to do something for the Lord that was way beyond my natural abilities. My first inclination was to make excuses why someone else would be better and more qualified. This was not false humility. It was just the absolute truth of the matter. However, the person who asked me to use my feeble talent in a grander way really encouraged me to just do it and said, it's going to be fun. And you know what? They were actually right. I was nervous at first, which can be a good thing. But as I surrendered my talents to the Lord, he really showed up and helped me. It was not because I am great, but because the Lord delights in taking mere humanity and working through them in a mighty way. When it was all said and done, I was humbled and could only say, Lord, that was all you. I felt his anointing, and yes, I prepared, but he for certain is the one who gets the glory. Like we have learned about with Solomon's life, there is usually a caveat to the Lord sending his anointing and blessing into our lives. The children of Israel learned this, sometimes the hard way, a blessing if we obey, a curse if not. Solomon was promised wisdom if he walked in the ways of the Lord. I don't know if you're like me or not, but I have tried to do things for the Lord at times, but maybe harbored sin, had unforgiveness in my heart, and like David, regarded iniquity. How does that always turn out in a big old mess every single time? 
However, when we seek the Lord, ask for the purity of his ways to wash our sinful hearts, he is merciful and gracious to forgive. Then and only then are our talents and abilities used for God in a way that really impacts and changes lives for the glory of the Lord. An apostolic professor once told me in a class that I was part of, we can only take people where we have gone ourselves. So with that in mind, I want to ask you these questions. What has the Lord given you the ability to do for his kingdom? And with those giftings, how will you surrender those to be used for God and for his glory? Only you know if there are things that are keeping you from walking in his divine favor and blessing. I want to remind you today that there is much freedom, peace, and joy when we surrender every aspect of our lives to God. Be encouraged. If the Lord can use me, then I know he's not finished with you either. Have you ever stepped into a role in ministry that you felt unqualified for? You felt like, man, this is way more than I'm capable of doing. That was a good sign that you were in the will of God. Because if you could do it with your natural talent and ability, where's the room for you to give him glory in it versus the temptation to accept that glory for yourself? And so I think oftentimes we are called into ministry roles that exceed our abilities. And then it gives God opportunity to make up the gap so that he can get glory and so that people can be blessed. Obviously, that's his main goal is uh, to lead and guide each of us and the body of Christ as a whole uh, in the fulfillment and the fruition of his purpose and plan. And us stepping into that role that we don't feel qualified for gives him opportunity to do that and to do it in a way that he gets the glory. Solomon's example in Scripture should guide us in our responses to God's promises. Our prayers must always be humble, kingdom-minded prayers so that we may secure from our God what is needed for effective service to his kingdom because it's not our kingdom and it's not according to our plan and it's not according to our design. I think God inspires us and God gives vision to uh, the pastor of an assembly and then that vision translates down and can give us some vision and some idea of the direction to go, but ultimately we're constantly praying and seeking to fulfill God's will and to do his kingdom work according to his plan to accomplish the things that he has uh, designed to be accomplished through us. It's evident that leading a nation as great and as vast as Israel would not be an easy task. That doesn't take a great scholar to understand so many people in America, uh, especially because of our uh, system of government, there's so many Americans that are, you know, armchair presidents, so to speak, like, think it's so easy. Man, I'd do such a, a much better job. And you might have better ethics and better morals, um, but I think the, the full responsibility that goes with leading a nation um, exceeds what we sometimes think. And, of course, we all have opinions about uh, the, the capability or incapabilities of those that serve in all public offices. But if it was us leading a nation, um, I think, you know, it, it's not as easy a task as we would like to imagine. And Solomon knew this, and that's what compelled his request for wisdom. He knew he wasn't up to the challenge in his own ability. 
especially considering his youth. And as Solomon settled into this new assignment as king of Israel, God's answer to his request was quickly put on display and uh, became um, evident to the people of Israel as well as the nations that surrounded Israel. The situation as it was presented to Solomon seemed an impossible one. Two immoral ladies lived in the same house, and each had a child born three days apart. The ladies appeared before Solomon with a horrific account. In the night, one of the ladies had rolled over onto her child and suffocated him. Upon discovering her terrible loss, this grief-stricken lady took her deceased child and placed him next to the other lady while taking this lady's living child and holding him next to herself. And then in the morning, each lady claimed that the living child was hers. How could the king possibly determine with certainty to whom the living child belonged? For most of this, this is not the first time you've heard this story. You know how God's supernatural investment of wisdom into Solomon prompted him uh, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 24, 25, to basically say, bring me a sword, divide the living child in two, and give one half to this lady and one half to that lady, and they both can have part of the child. And I'm sure those in the uh, king's court that day must have recoiled in horror at such a ghastly uh, suggestion. But then the king's purpose was quickly revealed. The true mother of the living child pleaded that the child just be spared and given to the other lady. I'd rather her have him and him live than you to cut him in two. That lion lady had no such uh, reaction to his instruction. She was like, that's fine. It'd be, it'd be all right. And so it was immediately clear to everyone present uh, who the child belonged to. Solomon's judgment in this situation demonstrated divine empowerment, and word of his wise discernment quickly spread among his subjects um, we see in 1 Kings 3.28 that all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. His profound wisdom solidified Solomon's standing as Israel's natural sovereign. Uh, remember, David had a couple of sons that tried to become king before he uh, gave that uh, handoff, that succession to Solomon publicly. So, after the sacrifices that Solomon had made, the temple that Solomon had built, and the evident wisdom that God had granted Solomon, no one could any longer doubt that this man was God's chosen leader for the nation of Israel at this time. And I think quite often God likes for others to see his blessings on display in our life so that it'll cause them to ask questions. It'll make them curious about why you're, you seem so blessed and highly favored. It just seems like things go well for you. And even when things aren't going well, that peace that you exude, that joy that you continue to demonstrate makes them curious. How can you still be this at peace or this joyful? I know all the problems that are going on. You've told me about that, and yet you haven't become depressed. You haven't given up you haven't started banging your head against a wall you're not about to lose your mind how and i think uh many times god wants to use his blessings in our lives that come from us keeping those conditional promises so that he can draw even more people to him wisdom in itself 
is a commodity of incalculable worth. Proverbs 8:11 tells us, For wisdom is better than rubies, and all things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. You think of the most luxurious things that are available to humanity today. You know, the multi-hundred multi million dollar yachts that uh, some of the billionaires own and the mansions and the cars and all of that, all the fine clothing. And you look at any of it, none of it can compare to true wisdom. Wisdom is better than rubies. It's better than all things that can be desired. They're not even to be compared to it. And given that wisdom is primarily a spiritual commodity, experience alone, nor a book other than the Bible can provide wisdom to us. God will not give us wisdom to the measure that he gave to Solomon, for he himself declared there would never be another to rival Solomon, his words. But God has given us a wonderful promise to be the source of wisdom in our lives. James 1.5, many of you can quote this scripture. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Liberally means he's not stingy with it. He's not going to ration it out and withhold wisdom from you that you're seeking. But it also does not mean that you're going to reach the level of wisdom that Solomon demonstrated, which when we read uh, Solomon's other writings, he applied himself to seek wisdom in so many various areas. And for us, maybe we're just not that interested in all the areas that he saw, but the areas that it's important to us, the areas where we really need some wisdom and some guidance, God has promised that if we will ask him, he will grant it liberally. We should regularly, sincerely ask him for this wonderful gift because it will equip us to serve him effectively, just as it did Solomon. I don't think we can reach our maximum effectiveness in the kingdom of God and doing the work of the kingdom of God if we're not asking for wisdom along the way. Because that wisdom that he gives us is going to help us avoid a lot of mistakes that would slow the progress. It's going to give us uh, guidance around certain obstacles. It's going to give us the wisdom as we endure certain hardships or trials. And so we need to be asking him for wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the word of God or from our spiritual authority or from the voice of God's spirit living in us allows us to make the right decisions that position us for success. Solomon's days witnessed both his submission to godly wisdom and his rejection of it. Again, if you look at the end of Solomon's life, you see where he was not applying the wisdom that God had given him in the decisions he was making. And so we can observe the benefits of wise choices and the vanity and despair of unwise choices even in the life of Solomon. And that should instruct each of us. It should be uh, a little bit of wisdom right there that we can glean uh, to seek wisdom consistently and fervently and not to get uh, a little too big for our britches, so to speak, where we start to think, well, I'm so wise now, I just can't mess up because that's not the case. We very easily can make unwise decisions even after a track record of having made wise decisions. As we prepare to wind down, there's a story I'd like to share about a man named Stanislav 
Petrov. I think, yep, we have an image of him on the screen. Millions of people owe him their lives. But chances are great you've never heard of him. Though largely unknown, Stanislav Petrov's exercise of wisdom on one fateful day in 1983 quite literally changed the course of civilization. And many have credited him with saving the world. On September 26 of 1983, tensions were very high between the United States and the Soviet Union. Just three weeks previous, the Russians had shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007, thinking it was a United States spy plane, resulting in the death of all 269 passengers and crew members that were on the flight. Lieutenant Colonel Petrov was at his post as the duty officer at the command center for the OKO nuclear early warning system in Moscow. And on that Monday evening, September 26, the Soviet satellite system reported the launch of an American intercontinental ballistic missile, followed closely by five more. All the Russian military protocols called for an immediate and massive retaliatory strike before the American missiles could hit their targets and render the Soviets' capacity to respond void. Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, however, felt that something just was not right. Why would the Americans only launch six missiles when they had thousands at their disposal, he wondered. So disobeying orders, he delayed long enough to double-check their systems only to learn that he was correct. The alarm had been generated by a computer malfunction. Experts have stated that by his actions, Petrov likely saved the lives of half the citizenry of Russia, the U.S., and all other NATO countries. Wisdom allowed this unsung hero that most of us have never heard of to spare millions from the horror of an all-out nuclear confrontation with nearly none of them even knowing how close the world came to such a horrible fate. Most of you have probably never heard that story. And while the chances of you or I ever being in such a pivotal position are minuscule, still each of us faces a collection of choices of equal magnitude. What will we do about our souls? How will we respond to Christ? Will we live faithfully for him? How will we serve his kingdom? Are we going to be content to say I'm saved because I've been born again while also being too busy to actually be involved in the work of his kingdom? Or are we going to prioritize his kingdom, recognizing that everything that we could achieve here in this life is temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal, the things that really matter, the lives that are touched through the gospel, the people who are impacted because of the ministries that we get involved in, that will last for all of eternity. Where? Where will we spend eternity? That's a question of greater magnitude, in my opinion, than the situation Petrov found himself in. These matters are of such significance that we should never consider making them on the foundation of human reasoning alone. Only godly wisdom can properly guide such monumental decisions. 
someone once defined wisdom as the ability to see life from God's point of view. I think we all should seek to acquire the ability to see life from God's point of view so that we can make every decision of life from the perspective of what God sees and what God thinks is important and what puts a smile on his face. And this should be true of the daily choices we make that affect our families, our careers, and our finances, as well as those that impact eternity. We should be seeking that God perspective, that God viewpoint. How would God look at me taking this job opportunity? How would God look at me spending my finances here? How would God view what I'm viewing through streaming? How would God view where I'm spending my time? How would God view the fear that I'm allowing to keep me from using my talents and my giftings in a greater way to change lives? How would God view my decision to, in spite of my fear, use my talents and giftings in ministry to try to touch people's lives? How would God view my decision to prioritize Bible reading every day? How would God view my decision to pray every day? How would God view my decision to turn down the job promotion that would require me to miss the opportunity to be involved consistently in the kingdom of God and in the ministries that he's called me to? How would God view my decision to fast and to put aside the appetites and to bring my flesh under subjection so that he can speak more clearly? How would God view me making some quiet time in my day so that as I talk to him, I give him space to talk to me? How would God view me watching streaming of apostolic preaching or godly music as opposed to maybe a movie? How would God view the choices that I make each day? How would God view me choosing to obey that prompting of his spirit to give more into a missions offering or to go and to offer a Sunday school teacher, hey, I'd like to buy some supplies for your class. I'd like to buy a snack for your class. Could I do that? How would God view little things and sometimes big things? But if we can look at all of life's choices from that perspective of how would God view this? Is this something that when he sees it put a smile on his face? Or is it something that when he sees, he's just going to kind of scratch his head and be like, I know my kids do things all the time where I'm just like, what were you thinking? What is going through your head? I don't understand. I think it was more when they were younger. Of course, Alexander is still young enough. I do it quite often with him. I'm just like, help me, Jesus. Give me an understanding heart. <laughs> I know I'm in a room full of parents pretty much because everybody's like, yeah, I've been there. I'm there more than I care to admit now. Uh, but let's think about, like, how, how did our decisions, whether big or small, the clothes I wear, how does God, how's that God going to look at that uh, dress I put on or that, uh, shirt I put on or, um, you know, how's God going to view where I go, the, the places and the plans I have? Is that going to put a smile on God's face? Is it going to put a frown on his face? Is he going to be neutral? I mean, again, not everything's sin. It's not like he's going to be upset. He's not sitting up there just waiting for us to mess up, but I'm, I'm sure we do some things sometimes that he just is like, I thought he had come further than that. I thought he had wised up more than that. 
man, he's got a long way to go still. But if we could develop the ability to see each crossroads from the vantage point of our Heavenly Father, then the choices we make, I think, would become a little easier. Um, again, we're always going to wrestle with the flesh and the appetites of the flesh. Um, but the less we feed those appetites, the weaker they get. Right? That's why when we make those choices to pray and to read our Bible, we're doing things that strengthen. And when we make the decision to maybe fast a day or two days or three days or a week or whatever you feel to do, like you feel closer to God and, and it draws you and strengthens you, um, draws you closer to him, strengthens you, and empowers you to make those kinds of choices more easily the next time. Um, and that's the encouragement because we're all at different stages in our walk with God and we're all at different levels um, in our relationship with God. But it doesn't matter, you know, if you've been living for God for 25, 30 years, you still can do things that just make it that much easier to do the things that please him. There's still room for growth. Or if you're brand new um, and then things have seemed a little bit hard just knowing by the testimony of others, hey, I know, you know, it feels like a sacrifice at first to get up that, 15 minutes earlier and read your Bible before you go to work. But I'm telling you, after you've done it for six months, after you've done it for a year, you're like, I can't believe I ever did, went through my day without that. I don't understand what I was thinking. What, where was my priorities? <laughs> that, that little bit of time just helped set my attitude and my uh, thought patterns for the day so that when difficulties come up, I can handle them better. And so I think, uh, you know, it's just encouraging for all of us that it doesn't matter where we're at in our relationship with God or our walk with God that we can still do some things that's actually going to strengthen us and, and make it easier to do the things that put a smile on his face and that help us overcome those pitfalls and traps that the adversary would like to put in our path. So with that in mind, I wonder if you'd stand with me. And let's ask God tonight before we dismiss if he would just grant us all a little more wisdom and a little different perspective maybe in all of the choices that we make each day. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that we could be gathered together tonight around your word and that you, through your word, could speak to us. I'm asking, Father, that you would grant each of us just a little more wisdom and maybe a different perspective than we've had previously. Help us to, in each moment and through each day, pause and consider how the choices we're making would be viewed by you and help us to do the things that we know We'll put a smile on your face. Help us to do the things that will open up the opportunities to share your love and grace with others around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. Again, looking forward to the Blakes here Sunday. Y'all have a great rest of your week. See you Sunday.